0: and yet you allow human hands to change it, deal with it, modify it, and after a while, it's become a complicated mess. That's true when it comes to matters of humanity, such as governments. It's true when it comes to matters over which individuals have recourse and challenge. And it's also true in terms of what man changes or tries to in regard to even marriage to make it far more complicated when God's law is so simple. I would suggest, in light of all those things, this title, an anxious interview, maybe leads us to consider its development with some introductory thoughts like this. The Word of God presents to you and me the way of Christ is a way known for its simplicity. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 3, we read that you and I should not allow our minds to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And that word, simplicity, means purity, or simplicity. It's for sure that there is great purity in the way of Christ, but there's also remarkable simplicity. That simplicity, it seems to me, would easily be highlighted if you and I were to consider an ancient interview. I'd like to ask you to imagine a time travel for just a moment. Suppose you could vanish from your current slot in the year 2015 and appear at some city in the Middle Eastern part of the world in the first century AD. As you reappear, you see a gentleman who is, in fact, very excited about his religion. He speaks to others about it, encouraging them to appreciate what he now understands. And you can tell from the excitement in his voice that he would just love to share with you, too. As you listen to him in conversation, soon the opportunity comes when others have moved away and you can in fact speak with him personally. Over the next few moments, I'd like to ask that you think about his answers to several questions you might ask of him. I've listed these questions one by one, and as you look at the answers, I hope we'll all, as we come to the close of this lesson, shortly be impressed with the simplicity in Christ as well as this ancient interview. No doubt one of the first questions that you would be in position to ask this excited gentleman is the very one I've listed here. This church of which you speak, who founded it? I can tell there's a great deal of enthusiasm and eagerness in your voice. I too would like to know, tell me, who founded this organization of which you have such excitement? He, as he continues to speak about that excitement, You easily, of course, with your knowledge and your memory of modern 20th century and 21st century, you easily think about organizations religious-wise who trace their origins to Roger Smith, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Wesley, just to name a few. And yet, when you speak to this gentleman and you ask him who founded the organization of which you speak, he simply responds, Jesus Christ. And he never even hesitates in response to that answer. With power and purity and incredible directness, he recalls passages like these. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. And he easily recalls 1 Corinthians 3, 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He points direct attention, not to any man anywhere, but he lifts high the banner of Christ Jesus. He's the one that founded this body of which I speak and this one of which I'm so honored to be a part. After his answer to that question, you become more intrigued and you ask ask another one. As you can see, question number two. In regard to this church of which you speak, I'd also be very interested, you say, to know When was it founded and where? Again, as you think about the nature of modern year 2015, and you think with passing interest about the answers that many might give to that question today, you'll notice that there are some who, as they give recourse to gentlemen like John Calvin, would say the 16th century. Others with regard to John Wesley would point to the early years of the 1700s. Others, of course, speaking about the Jehovah's Witnesses and otherwise would point to 1872. But this gentleman with such power and majesty in his voice, he points to a seminal set of ideas. He again directs your attention to Jesus Christ and says, He was crucified in the spring of the year AD 30. And a few days later, after he was crucified, his church was established. And so the year A.D. 30 is it, and it doesn't rest upon the considerations of man anywhere at any time. Furthermore, he says, I can pinpoint exactly that those events in Acts chapter 2 took place in Jerusalem. It wasn't in London. It wasn't in Germany. It wasn't in New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, or anywhere else. It was none other than Jerusalem. And easily, he hearkens to our consideration, verses like these... We noticed a moment ago that from the very words of the Master, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But then you notice that text went on to say, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Speaking those words to Peter on that occasion. In Mark chapter 9, verse number 1, Jesus, in addressing a group gathered on that occasion, said, There be some of you standing here which shall not taste of death until you've seen the kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom of God is the church, and thus the Lord asserted that in the lifetime of some of those then alive, the church was going to be established. May I suggest that the only thing then that you and I need to do is ask if the Lord promised it was going to come with power, or if we can find when the power came, we will know clearly and unambiguously when the church began. As you look at Luke 24, verse number 49, Jesus told those same apostles after His own resurrection, tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He asserted to them that this... Holy Ghost, this power is going to come upon you. All we need to do is look one chapter later. In the first four verses of Acts, the second chapter, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There the power came on those apostles endowing them with the capability of speaking in languages that they hadn't skillfully learned. And as that power came, it's no wonder that you noticed the text that was our lesson text this morning. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. That church was not in existence prior to the events of the second chapter of Acts, but then as that chapter closed, it was in existence. And this gentleman with whom we're interviewing directly pointed us to that simple fact. Question number three, not only might one have an intense interest in these things, but being intrigued further, you proceed to ask, with regard to this organization, this church to which you refer, what about its authority? What about the nature of the authority resident in it? This day and time, again, as you think about the modern day, you remember that there are a number of examples and circumstances in which individuals gather in delegation to decide the doctrines and the presentations of the church. And there are others who have their cardinals and dioceses and conventions and otherwise. And yet, as you further probe this individual, so where's the headquarters of your organization? Who gives you the authority to go out and preach what you do? Is there some council somewhere? This gentleman simply responds, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. This body to which I refer and this one of whom I speak, it is Christ Jesus that is its head. In Colossians 1 verse 18, And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Jesus Christ, the head of that organization known as the church. And you and I readily appreciate that that follows from the majestic statement that he made in Matthew 28, 18. All power, all authority, he affirmed, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. As this gentleman continues to speak, notice the simplicity of his answers. He is not by any means less than direct, He is certainly very much straightforward in the things that he has to say. One final thought, perhaps, in light of question three. You and I know that Jesus, of course, died on the cross, and we understand so well that as this gentleman speaks about that, he makes reference to the New Testament, which is his last will and testament. When you and I give thought to the character of a will, a person's will, We know that while that person is alive, he or she can construct a will, but once the person dies, the will is finalized in the sense that it cannot be changed any longer. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 16 and 17 state then that the testator is now dead. Jesus Christ, and this is His last will and testament, and therefore its terms cannot be changed. No wonder it's so simple. If it was simple while He was alive... The fact that it can now not be changed continues to imply its simplicity. No wonder as you come to one last point on this third one. That means that this gentleman that we're interviewing, he doesn't make reference to any man-made creed because there is no creed sufficient to replicate and set forth the truth of God. Question four. Perhaps in light of all these, we're now intrigued So what's the name of this church you're talking about? I know that men have all kinds of considerations and names and descriptions. I want to know about the one you're talking about. What kind of a denomination is it? You'll notice in light of that, today we have so many names, so many descriptions. You and I will notice this list is by no means exhaustive. It wasn't too long ago, the World Christian Encyclopedia tallied well over 39,000 Christian organizations in this world. Many of them, of course, have various and sundry descriptive names. And this gentleman with such majesty and such directness responds with a description found in the Bible. Shouldn't we have a desire to be called by a Bible name? Shouldn't we have a desire to be a part of an organization that Jesus would recognize? And so he points us to passages like Romans 16, 16. The churches of Christ salute you. There were organizations in the first century, and this gentleman said, you know about the church of Christ It's meeting here in our town? As he pointed to a name like that one, notice again how it states that it belongs to Christ. It's the church that belongs to him. He did build it and he owns it. It's His blood that purchased it, Acts twenty twenty eight. Surely in light of those things, our interview is becoming deeper and more profound with each passing moment. One by one, the gentleman's answers are so distinct from what typically would be heard, at least in your day and mine. As you notice, some of the features of this fourth question, this name, the Church of Christ... You and I might affirm then that there were organizations, congregations in the first century. There was the church of God at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. There was the church of God at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 and 2. There was the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 7. In the book of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia, we read about congregations of the Lord's people existent in these locations. You and I in our interview maybe have come to question five. In light of all of these questions, perhaps now we're prompted to inquire as to this one. Sir, we might say, you seem so energetic and you bubble forth with excitement relative to this religious organization, this church of which you're a part. I'd like to know how you became a member of it. Did you have to give a testimony in some way? Did you pay dues to become a member of it? Were you voted on so that you could be allowed to join? Tell me, how did you become a member of it? You and I know today that those kind of answers might not be all that surprising. After all, there are many religious organizations for whom one or the other of those things we've mentioned are the case. But this gentleman says nothing of the like. He simply says the following, "'I obey the gospel of Jesus Christ.'" I would call to your attention this phrase again in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 47. And consider in your mind again the, seed of, the set of events that unfolded on that remarkable day. We noted a moment ago that the Holy Spirit came on those apostles early in that chapter and they began to preach. Verse number 14 says that Peter standing up in the midst of them and proceeded to speak the marvelous glory of Jesus Christ. In verses 21 and 22, he commented very powerfully and straightforwardly that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is true, he then made these observations You saw Jesus Christ. What was done was not done in a corner, he was one who was in fact living in an open way, and you witnessed him. Furthermore, you put him to death. You folks, Peter said, you put the Son of God to death, but the bars of death were incapable of holding Him, for up from the grave He arose, verse 24. And not only that, He has now been elevated to the position of leadership, rulership, if you please, over the throne of David, verses 26 to 30. As such, He closes that sermon like this, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. At this point, consider, there were individuals there, roughly 3,000 in number. They were pricked in their heart, verse 37 tells us. They cried out, men and brethren, what should we do? Consider the circumstance in which they were. Sinners, absolutely. Having put to death Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, what did they do to be saved? Peter gave them these inspired words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. We notice in verse 41, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then verse 47 says, as our lesson text pointed out this morning, The fact that praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord adding to the church daily, those that were being saved. You'll notice this gentleman says, I simply complied with the terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No man voted me into the church. I paid no dues if you please. It's not that I was in some sense elevated to position to be permitted to join. I simply obeyed the gospel that Christ delivered. It is for that reason you'll notice that you and I could highlight what we saw in Acts chapter 2. 2. A person must believe the gospel, particularly believing that Jesus is indeed the only begotten Son of God. A person must repent of his or her sins. Peter said so. A person must confess the marvelous name of Christ as a Son of God. And a person must be baptized in order to receive remission of sins. Upon so doing, you'll appreciate then that the fact is well straightforward. I became a member because I was added to it by Jesus Himself. That's a powerful statement. No human being can add you or me to the church, period. Only Christ can because He owns it. He bought it with His blood. This interview is such that the simplicity is easy to see, isn't it? What about our next question, question six? So in terms of this church to which you refer, Again, your excitement is easy to see. What are the benefits of your membership in this body? The benefits of your membership in this church you speak about. I would ask you to notice today there are many who would give a variety of answers. Some, perhaps, are parts of the religious bodies they are because of the social advantages it offers them. My boss goes there, so I will too, so that I look good in his sight. Or maybe my friends and neighbors go there. My children's parents, or my children's friends' parents, that's where they happen to go. It makes a good time for my kids to play with some other kids about their own age. You'll notice all kinds of answers might be offered. Our gentleman, however, has a much deeper answer than this. The chief benefit, salvation from sin and a straightforward journey toward heaven. It is the blood of Christ that's reached in this church to which I refer. I would ask you to consider verses like Hebrews 9 verse 22. Without shedding of blood there is no remission. All these other social advantages are aside from the point. A church, if it is the church of our Lord, is a church predicated on the saving blood that He shed and offered that blood highlighted in verses like Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life, do you enjoy that today? This gentleman in the ancient era did, and he was bubbling to tell us about it. You and I know very well that these other social statements really are an insult to the God of heaven when it comes to His church. Those might be somewhat minor advantages, but they don't speak to about the eternal purpose and character of it. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, the inspired writer said, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. To the intent that now, He goes on to say, relative to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ. That eternal purpose perhaps leads us to notice in Ephesians 5, 23, this remarkable statement. It is true, it's found in the midst of a discourse concerning marriage. But He says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. And He is the Savior of the body. Verses 23, 24, and 25. You'll notice the body to which he refers is the church. And so, in the body means Christ is my Savior and I'm saved in that body. Doesn't that position the church in an amazing place? In the church, saved. Not in the church, not saved. If Christ is the Savior of the body, then anyone not in that church is not saved. This gentleman understood that. And he helped us by way of interview appreciate it too, didn't he? No wonder as you come to the seventh question, as our questions heighten in their appreciation. So what about the name that you wear? You've told me about Jesus. In fact, every one of your answers almost has directed attention to him. And you have spoken about the body that he established, the church that belongs to him. What about the name you wear? And you and I need not be reminded that in our modern day, a whole host of answers might be given, some asserting, I'm a witness, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Baptist. Those lists lead us to ask, what about this gentleman's reply? Keep in mind, as you and I ask about the name that he wears, he lived long, long, long before any of these other organizations were ever even established it would be over 15 centuries before the Methodist church would begin it would be well over 16 centuries before the Baptist church would begin this gentleman didn't know anything about any of them and so when I asked what name do you wear he simply replied I'm a Christian I'm a Christian and he says it with such joy, such happiness in his face. And he quickly reminds us of Acts 11:26 26, that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And that was the fulfilling of that ancient pro- prophecy found in Isaiah 62. In the long ago, God had affirmed that I will give a name when the Gentiles receive my righteousness. And sure enough, at the household of Cornelius, Peter for the first time opened the door of the gospel to the Gentile nation. As Peter recounted the events of that day, eight verses later, the name is given. Eight verses! Acts 11.18 to Acts 11.26. Today it's a shame to be called by any name other than the God-given one. To think that we can serve God using any other designation than that one. When Paul preached to Agrippa in Acts, the 26th chapter, here again was a world-renowned leader. He had jurisdiction over so many, and as Paul preached to that man that day, he said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul wasn't persuading him to be anything except a Christian. You might remember that that man that day wasn't too enthused about being so. He was still hesitant. And it still is that name Christian that you and I so joyfully wear and use today. In 1 Peter 4.16, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. We read in 3 John about the name that prompts you and me as servants of God to do what we do the way we do it. Question 7 has then brought us to appreciate the attribute of the name Maybe as we go on to question number eight, I would ask that you consider this answer from the gentleman. He has spoken so often about the church, and so perhaps if with interest you might say, well, tell me about the building that you meet in. Tell me about the specifics of the details of it. Again, we easily can recall that in our modern day, we see cathedrals, and various and sundry, very elaborate structures and buildings. This gentleman, however, seems to respond nothing of the like. He says, you don't seem to understand. The building is not important. He points to us in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 16, 5, the church met in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. In Philemon, verse number 2, it met in Philemon's house. The building we meet in is not important. We could meet under a tree, by a river, in somebody's house, in a barn. It doesn't matter. As he answers thoughts and considerations like that one, he helps us see easily that as he speaks about the church, he speaks about a group of people. It's not the building, but a group of people who've been washed from their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, They enjoy fellowship with one another, but more importantly, they enjoy fellowship with God, 1 John 1, 5. That fellowship is the prompting and leading guide to that which they do in worship and everything else. With those statements, how about question 9? So far, mister, your answers and your statements have been so very enlightening. But perhaps it's easy to see that when the word church is mentioned... Often, the thought of worship enters our mind. So tell me about your worship. What's it like? When do you worship? He again, with a smile on his face, shares some things like this. We meet on the first day of the week because that's the instruction, the authority that we have. In Acts 20, verse number 7, when Paul gathered with the brethren in Troas, it was the first day of the week, the church in Corinth. First day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. That first day of the week is the very day that Christ Jesus arose, Matthew 28, 6. That's the very day He gathered with those apostles, John 20, verses 20 and following. One by one, we appreciate the fact then that the first day of the week is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. The ancient Jews met on that day in terms of many of the decrees relative to that Sabbath. But you and I notice that there is no Sabbath per se in the New Testament. We worship on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. First day of the week, Sunday. And as our gentleman speaks about the nature of that Sunday, he calls to our appreciation the events, the activities that take place, and how simple they are. We pray. Men with holy hands, lead us in prayer, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. As they do that, all of us, though, communally enjoy the opportunity to pray unto God, praying without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. But furthermore, we sing. We do not use mechanical instruments of music because the Lord does not authorize them. We lift up our voices, speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord, Colossians 3, 16, Ephesians 5, 19. And thus, as we sing... The time comes when we give attention to the Word of God. Sometimes a chapter is read, sometimes a gentleman will share a sermon, but we give attention to reading and to studying. Just like Paul did in Acts twenty, verse number seven. And just like is admonished upon Timothy in Second Timothy four, verse two, Timothy, preach the word be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And hence, in addition to that, we also partake of the Lord's Supper. A memorial. We find in the words of Paul, do this in remembrance of me, as he quoted or made reference to what the Lord had set forth in Matthew 26. And so there are only two emblems. They are unleavened bread and fruit of the vine, nothing else, and no substitutes. As we partake of this, each Lord's day, it is a memorial of the very death of Christ Jesus, the bread reminding us of His body, the fruit of the vine, of His blood. And in fact, we are told that any who do not partake of it properly, in fact, not discerning the Lord's body, do bring damnation upon themselves. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26 and following. It is true as we partake of that, we also give as we've been prospered. Namely, we contribute to the cause of the Lord's work. And we do it cheerfully. Happily, in fact, with expectancy, looking forward to the ways in which those funds can be used to further the blessed kingdom of God. When you think about those attributes of worship, look how simple they are. May I say to you that that gentleman with whom you and I are having an interview, when he assembles to worship with those of that day, we will easily recognize what he's doing. In fact, you and I would feel at home there. Now, I admit, the language they'd be speaking might be different. It might be Greek. But we would easily recognize singing, praying, taking of the Lord's Supper, studying of the Word of God, and contributing to the Lord. Nothing else would appear. In the modern era, much worship on this world, that gentleman would not recognize at all because nothing like it happened in the first century. But you and I would be right at home in his worship. Perhaps as you close that slide, you recognize the tremendous invitation that you and I are prepared to address in part number 10. So you ask, by now you too are as excited as he. I'd like to become a member of your organization. How do I do it? Who may become a member? Do I have to be born into an aristocratic family? Do I have to have a certain pedigree to my lineage in order to be justified as one that might enter your organization? He again with a smile on his face simply appreciates anybody that obeys the gospel as you and I mentioned earlier can become a member of this body. Jesus said in Matthew 11 verse 28 Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the Bible closes in Revelation 22, 17 with yet one final invitation. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. The problem is, in our modern day, there are too many whosoever wants. Oh, that we might appreciate those that are whosoever will. As we close our lesson... What a revealing interview it's been to speak to this gentleman who was overcome with excitement and sharing with us the truth of the gospel. For you see, he lived long before there were any denominations. There were none. He simply told us what was the revealed will of heaven. But my friend, the thoughts of man haven't changed God's will. The thoughts of man haven't changed the revelation from the almighty God of heaven. And today... Are you a member of this body that he has spoken about? This interviewee that has shared with us the nature of these truths, are you a member of that same body as him? You realize again, you and I as Christians have brothers and sisters in Christ that lived 20 centuries ago, nearly. How sweet it is to think about the unchanging character of this will of God. Though times might change in terms of what men can do with technology and otherwise, The simple plan of the gospel doesn't. If you're not a member of that body today, you need to listen with care to what the interviewee told us and to what the Word of God contains. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God, and be baptized. And upon doing, live faithfully till death. Revelation 2 verse 10. If you have erred from the faith, though once a member of the body you were, but today you're not faithful... Not only do you know it, you know that others know it. Why not rush back to the side of Christ? He stands at the door and knocks, Revelation 3, 20 and 21, and He invites you to come back to His side, and He's promised upon your repentance and your confession of those errors, He'll forgive them. If we could be of help to you today, don't delay. Why not come now while together we stand and sing?